okay? Silas and Timothy would come later. But he walks around Athens and he sees all these idols in which the Athenians worship their gods. There were thousands of them, and he sees the names of the gods that are on the idols. He spots one idol that intrigues him very much, and it's actually an altar, and there's a plaque. And engraved on the plaque are these words, to an unknown God. They have thousands of gods. They have thousands of altars and thousands of idols and thousands of temples, and they have one to the unknown God. Athens is so religious that they didn't want to miss anybody, so they have this God that they thought maybe they missed and they might not know, so they had an idol for him, okay? But here's the thing. We worship that God too, and I'll explain in just a minute. Holding him. This may take a little while. There we go. But something clicks inside of Paul, and he thinks to himself, this unknown God is going to be Jesus to them. I will use this altar and this plaque to present Jesus, and this is a very creative way of presenting the gospel. And that's how you build bridges to communities who don't know the Lord. I'm concerned for America, in truth, I'm concerned for the world because it seems like there is less and less desire for people to hear about Jesus. The world is still religious. However, people are creating avenues and veins to all different kinds of gods. The people who are being born in America, if their parents are not people of faith, they have the least chance in the history of the United States of having an adequate witness of who Jesus is. In my generation, we had grandmas and grandpas that were prayer warriors. And back in my day, if you didn't go to church in the summer, your parents sent you to VBS because they wanted to get you out of the house, and that was a good babysitting service. So everybody knew a little bit about Jesus. The people that were lost in my generation were more like prodigals. They were ones that just kind of left the Father, all right? The ones that are lost today... It's a different thing. They have never known the truth. And they don't have a father really to go back to. They must find their father. We're at a point in America that we now have a generation that will not have faith passed down to them from generation to generation as before. The only way that they're going to know is if we do a good job of building relationships with those families. And right now, being a Christian outside of the church is not a favorite thing. I love the church. I love you. But the name of Christianity has been sullied outside of the church. I believe, though, that even the atheists have this hope this small hope that there is a God. I really believe that in my heart. They sit in the prairies of Oklahoma, in the deserts of Arizona. They sit on the coast of Florida, the mountains of Colorado, and they have to think to themselves, there has to be some sort of order. There has to be some sort of design in all of this. There's a crack in their own 
anti-theology. We need to be a group who will be willing to plant a seed inside of those cracks of those who are unbelievers. So much of the time, we just get mad at people who don't think like we do. I remember getting a call at the church when we were in Dallas, and a lady had a Jehovah Witness on her front door, and she couldn't get rid of it. She goes, what do I do? He's making me so mad. I know I don't believe what he does, but I can't fight him. And I said, honey, just love him. Go back to the door and say, you know, I believe in Jesus in a very classical way, and I reject your theology, but not you. I love you. Have a great day. Can you say something like that? I remember my first confrontation with an atheist was when I was in eighth grade art class. I didn't realize that there were people who really didn't believe in God. And this kid in my class said he's an atheist. And all I did was get mad at him, and I didn't know any better. But now we're older. Instead of getting angry at people who don't think like us, wouldn't it be better for we Christians have love and compassion on those that are lost and they just don't know? Just a thought. So much of the time, we just get mad at those that don't think like us. But Paul, he comes to Athens, and they don't know. And he says, I know the name of that God that you don't know. He didn't come in and just say, let's rip all this out. You guys are completely nuts. We're starting over. He said, hey, Athenians, could I talk to you about this new idea? There's a man standing in a cafe in England. He happened to be American. He's standing there, and there's this little ruddy-cheeked English boy standing in front of him. And they happen to be standing in front of an ice cream freezer. You know, the kind that uh, have all the little tubs inside? Kind of like the one at Brahms, but much smaller. It's had four to six ice cream tubs. And the little boy is trying to kind of peek over the edge to see what's inside. He can't see. And he turns around and looks at this guy. And he said, I believe I can, my, my accent always sound Iranian or something like that. It doesn't matter what language I'm trying to speak, okay? He goes, I believe there's ice cream down there. And the man looks at him, and he starts pulling out his wallet. You know, he's going to buy him ice cream. But that's not what he wanted. And the little boy went like this. He said, if I could get a bit of a boost, I believe I could see. So the man reaches up under his armpits and raises him up so he could see. And the little English voice, aha, my favorite, it's vanilla. And he puts him back down. The little boy asks for a scoop of vanilla ice cream. What's your point, Pastor Scott? These people out there hear us talking about Jesus, they've rejected Jesus. The reason is, is they just can't quite see. They don't have the experience with Jesus that you and I do. They're not used to feeling his promptings and, and sensing his voice and his direction in their lives. They don't know, but they need somebody that can pick them up a little bit and help them to see just a little bit better. You know, that's the problem when we talk to God. They have a notion that there's going to be something there. They just can't see it. They don't know how to experience His voice, and it sounds foolish to them, and they don't want to look foolish, so all this stuff just gets washed away from them. And 
they don't die with you. Number one, we must know the unknown God. Paul didn't have a chance of reaching the people of Athens without this lead-in. It gave him a way to speak to the Athenians that they could respect. Paul was an intellectual. Paul was highly educated. He was respected. He had an encounter with God. He was knocked to the ground and blinded for three days until his eyes were open. He heard a voice from heaven that says, Paul, this is Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Wow. He sold out. By the way, did anybody in here have an experience with God like that? He had a physical experience with God. He experienced his power. And he can't simply just go share his testimony. Acts 17 and 16 says this. Now while Paul waited from them at Athens or for them at Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. His spirit was stirred in him. He's in an idolatrous city, and his spirit is stirred within him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, Paul decided to use the system that was already in place. What do you mean? In our culture, in our world, the system that's already in place that we can use in sharing about the Lord Jesus, lifting them up so they can see a little bit higher, is our neighbors. It's already in place. Our jobs. Our schools. And I could go on and on. And we're not using people just as an agenda, but we're reaching people because we love them. People that you will influence to Jesus are probably people that you already know. Truthfully, I'm not crazy about going next door and knocking on the door and telling people about Jesus that I do not know. That's a little intimidating to me. And honestly, that's why people turn away the Jehovah Witnesses. They come to the door and they want to get their foot in the door and not let you shut the door and force their theology on you. Okay? How do you respond to the Jehovah Witnesses? I've seen the signs on the door that says, no soliciting. And they're there to keep the Jehovah Witness away. And the assembly of God, if they want to come and force their theology on them. You say, Pastor, that doesn't sound very spiritual. I'm going to explain. Somebody said they saw a door not long ago and it said this. They went up to the door and it said, I already have read the newspaper. I already have candy. I already know Jesus, so go away. I was at the mall, Grapevine Mills Mall, Grapevine, Texas. You been there? I was there, and I was walking in. I was going to go to the American Bandstand restaurant and get a patty melt. Lovely. And when I walked in, I saw in front of me a group of 15 teenagers, just probably pre-college age, something like that, and I knew immediately what they were doing. They were there to do co-witnessing with the evangelism explosion. And one of them, I guess it was his turn. It was his up. 
and he locked his eyes on me, and he came toward me. And I had a decision to make. Am I just going to tell him, hey, I'm already born again, or am I going to play along? And I decided I'm going to give this guy a uh, good lesson. So he comes to me. He looks at me, sir, he says, how you doing? Introduced himself, and he's doing really good. And he said, uh, by the way, I want to ask you a very important question. If you were to stand before God today, and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell me? And I said, I don't know. I guess I'm a good person. I was being the best model that I could be for him. Okay? Because I wanted to help him out. And we went on down the line, and I answered all the questions. I fell into his trap, so to speak. Okay? Answered all the questions just right, and it finally came to the point where he says, how would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today? And I decided my little larceny had gone far enough. And I put my hand on his shoulders, and I said, hey, I didn't want to give you a hard time. I want you to give you some practice. But I said, I'm a born-again Christian, and I just wanted you to know that I respect what you do. And I appreciate that. I really do. Okay? But uh, had I not been a Christian, I might have been kind of put off by all of that. But I was a cooperative sinner for him today. Number two, we must know them. We must know the unknown people. We must not only know the unknown God, but we must know the unknown people. I know my Sunday school teacher meant well, but they taught me when I was a kid that I shouldn't associate with sinners, that I should have friends who uh, knew Christ, and, and we could be together. And I know that they meant very, very well. But the truth is, what they were trying to teach us is, you don't have enough experience in life to not be influenced by those who are outside of your faith. You don't need to be associating with them because you're going to become like them. But some of you are strong enough that they will not have any influence on you. Once you develop your values and they're solidified in you, you can invite those kind of people into your life and be an influence on them. I knew a man by the name of David Beebe, and he was a new Christian, but he wanted to influence all his friends who were in the bar. He spent all of his time in the bar, and guess what? David wasn't strong enough to influence them. He would come home, stumble, fall down drunk, and call me and said, I've blown it. David, you're not strong enough yet. you got to be strong enough so you won't be sucked into their lives and do what they do. Acts 17 and 18. Then the certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? They're talking about Paul. Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. There were two groups in Athens. There was one called the Stoics, one called the Epicureans. The Stoics believed this way, that whatever came your way in life, that you were to face it and take it on, on your own, and you could do it and you could make it. You know, and that produced some wonderful qualities in the Stoics, but it also produced one thing that was really bad, and it was pride. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. I'm going to head this on myself. It's going to be good. I can handle it. But then there was the Epicureans, and their belief was that they should have a direction in life that they experience nothing but pleasure and happiness. And in order to do that, they believed that to reach this pleasure, one needed to avoid excesses, that's good, avoid the fear of death, 
seeking freedom from pain. They believed that God had no interest in their life. He was there, but their gods had no interest in them. And that's the stand of most people today. There may be a God, but he doesn't know me. Well, let me tell you something today. I know for a fact that God does know you. He knows every hair that's on your head. You were known by him before you were born. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, and you were created with a great and a wonderful purpose and destiny built into your life before you were born. God knows you. These two beliefs that the Epicureans and the Stoics had created a city that was filled with pleasure and a city that was filled with pride. In his sermon to them, Paul, he quoted a poet whom they knew and was from their culture, and he quoted, he quoted this writing, In him we live and move and have our being. And you're saying, well, Pastor, that's in our scripture. Yes, it is. But it was also one of the writings of a poet before it came to our scripture. Wow. They thought, they perked up and they said, wow, do you know our poets? Do you know something of our culture? And the Greek philosophers knew that quote from their writings. There was some respect built by that little block that he laid in the bridge that he was trying to build to these particular men. He knew the unknown men, and he knew the unknown God. And number three, we must know when. You know, timing is critical when you're going to share the Lord. Timing is sometimes much more critical than what you say. Verses 19 through 21, and they took him, they took Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. What did Paul do? Paul earned his spot to be able to speak at the Aragopagus. He earned that spot by earning their respect. I remember one time trying to coerce a young man to come to the altar and get saved. Preaching a revival down in Mesquite, Texas. And he was, you could tell he was bitter. He was angry. He was about 17 years old. And he wore it all over his face and all over his body language as well. His mama came to him and says, can you do anything to cause him to move? I took it as a challenge. So I went down and whispered in his ear and said, hey, why don't you come down and, and pray with me? Okay? You know, let's, let's seek God together. And he says, no. He made no bones about it. Finally, I got him to come down because I convinced him that I'd like to pray for him. But he didn't have to say anything. And I talked to him, and I said everything that I could possibly say to convince that young man to come to Jesus Christ. And I'd like to tell you that I was successful, but I wasn't. And the truth is, because it wasn't God's timing. He wasn't responding to God's call at that time, and he wasn't going to respond to me. I could not be his Holy Spirit. 
and I quite possibly set him back. I don't like to admit this. Mama was anxious. I, as an evangelist, wanted to cause him to come, but no move. All this started, this pole thing, while he was waiting. Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. Why is waiting important? Because waiting is when God will surprise you and show up and do wonderful things. When you're waiting. I took a trip to the doctor one time. I was sitting, I had an appointment at 11 o'clock. I arrived at 10 to 11. 11 came. 10 after 11 came. 20 after 11 came. And I'm starting to get a little irritated then. Have you all experienced this? 11.30 came, and now it's beyond irritating. And I go up to the lady behind the desk, and I said, I have an appointment at 11 o'clock with the doctor. It's now 11.30. Am I going to get to see him? Because I have another appointment I have to get to at 12. And she said, I'm so sorry that he has uh, booked up and, and has fallen behind in schedule. Could you just be patient for a little bit, ma'am? Well, I turned around irritated and saw a sign on the door as I turned around. I think God put it in my gaze just like then. And the three words that were on the sign were these, the waiting room. And the Lord kind of moved in my spirit a little bit. And she said, he said, I have one of those, Scott. The waiting room. Let me tell you something. There's a lot to be learned in the waiting room because I promise you the waiting room of God, God is always there. It may not seem like anything's happening there, but he's always there and he's waiting right beside you. And if you'll look to him, friends, you'll find him. Number four, the method is very important. It may be something that we've never tried before as far as our witness for Christ Verse 22 and 23, then Paul stood in the middle of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. If you have another translation of the Bible, it will say you are very religious. And they all go, yeah, we are very religious. They took a lot of pride in their religiousness, okay? You're very religious, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. You guys have always known this, un, uh, uh, this unknown God. You've known he existed, and I'm going to introduce him to you because I know who he is. Isn't it wonderful? He said, I find you to be very religious. It wouldn't be wonderful if in discussions or debates or whatever, we would start them with a compliment. That's kind of dishonorable. Starting with a compliment, okay? Before we give any kind of criticism, start with a compliment. We would advance the kingdom of God so much further. There was a dad who came to me one time. His daughter was being challenged to write a paper in the Mounds High School of the seven ways to find God. And it was a pagan theology. 
that there were seven roads that led to this God. And he was so upset and so angry that he said, I think I'm going to demand that she be able to be exempt and do something else. And I said, my brother, why don't you do it this way? Why don't you have your daughter write a paper on the seven spirits of God and how they all converge at the end of life and they are the road to heaven and they are the pagans trying to scramble because they have a little knowledge of God and they're trying to explain it. But it's truly a Christian theology. Do you think she could approach it from that way instead of being a pain in the teacher's side that she could take it as a challenge to be a witness to the teacher in her class? We don't have to boycott everything just because we disagree. I have boycotted things at principle as well, but there's not always a call to do that. Can't we be people of love and kindness and solution rather than, rather than always being the people of boycott? Paul knew how to build a bridge. He identified with these people through their culture. There was a guy that said to me that he was a true liberal one time. I said, really, what does that mean? Define it for me. He said, well, I am open to everything. I said, well, that's pretty cool. You're open to everything. He said, well, I am of the Christian theology. I'm born again. And he said, oh, no, no. I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> I said, well, then you're not a true liberal because you just said that you were open to everything. Well, not that. He was my friend, and I loved him anyway. And had wonderful discussions with him afterwards, okay? But when the timing comes that you're to speak, you're to do, be ready to move. How many seeds does it take to bring somebody to Christ? Let's just say it takes 138 seeds being dropped into this fertile soil to bring somebody to Christ. How many of us are willing to be number six? <laughs> How many of us are willing to be number 12? How many of us are willing to be number 63? When it takes 138. You know, if we want to be number 138, and we get in and start being number 138 when it's on 27, we may set that person's salvation back to 251 seeds. We not, may not be the one who is to do the harvesting. We may be watering, we may be planting, we may do, be doing whatever it is in that person's life, but we've got to be willing to be rejected, put down, because every time somebody puts in a seed, whether it's an act of kindness whether it's just getting to know the person, whatever it is, it's process a lot of time. And it's not just an event. There's four things I want you to take home. Number one, blessed are the flexible. Timing may different, be different sometime. The method may be different sometime. But I know a corollary to one of the uh, Beatitudes. This is it. Blessed are the flexible for they shall not be bent out of joint. Remember that. It's important, okay? 
you will snap in your life eventually if you're unfaithful. Number two, recognize when opportunity comes. This is your homework for this week, okay? This is your homework. Be sensitive with every person you meet this week. You may not say anything to them ever, but be sensitive. Ask yourself, is this an opportunity? Just an act of kindness, a word, getting to know more about their life. Those can be things that can be influences in their life. Number three, show respect to everybody. You see, disrespect is a sign that we really don't care about that person's feelings. Number four, it's one person at a time. Why do you say that, Pastor? Here it is. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he has died for everyone through the ages. Billions of people he's hanging on the cross for. And he turns to the thief on his right side and says, Today, you, one, will be with me in paradise. Just one. He took time for everybody. And we think of preaching and Billy Graham and the masses running to the altar and things like that. One of the truth is it's just one at a time. And those are our opportunities. Remember that. Acts chapter 17, 33 and 34, and I'm closing. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men prayed unto him, and they believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, okay? He was important. He's an important guy who came to Christ. And the woman named Damaris and others with her. Not a massive idol. People didn't come screaming and crying in the altar. But he had influence in them at times. Amen. Would you stand?